Hi, I'm Heather Ellis, your host on Our Stories, Ending HIV Stigma, a podcast by women living with HIV, where we share our stories of our diverse lives and challenge the myths and stereotypes that feed HIV stigma. Our Stories is part of the Women and HIV Tell the Story project, made possible by Gilead Sciences and produced by Positive Women Victoria in Australia. Sarah Fegan has been living with HIV for 12 years. Her story begins in Melbourne. As a troubled teen, Sarah left home at 14 and her youth became a roller coaster of homelessness, sex and drugs, which evolved into a bohemian life of self-discovery. After falling in love with a partner who didn't know their status, later Sarah was diagnosed with HIV. But while effective treatments were available, this was not enough and stigma nearly killed her. Today, Sarah is a peer navigator and one of Australia's most dynamic leaders in HIV advocacy, especially for women. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much, Heather. Thanks for having me and thanks for a beautiful introduction. (laughs) You're such an inspiration. I just want to start by asking, as a teenager, you were living on and off the streets of Melbourne, and this is often a lifestyle that is termed the university of life. Uh, What were some of your learning experiences that made you the person you are today? Starting with the big questions. I love it. Yeah, I think being on the streets, you know, and that comes in different forms as well. Sometimes you're sleeping rough, sometimes you're couch surfing, but you really feel like you're at the whim of other people. And I think, though, that can be a really good thing and a really bad thing because it can teach you about how the kindness of strangers or the gentleness of other people, but it can also teach you the harsh realities of, I guess, how cruel and how, um, how bad people can be as well. You know, and I was really lucky that during my time, you know, when I was homeless, that I had um, really good people that, you know, did come in. And I have to say that those, there would have been more positive experiences than negative ones. You were telling me that your parents stood by you during those years. And so what would be your advice to other parents who might have teenagers going through a similar situation? Uh, My parents, just shout out to those beautiful humans. Um, I put them through hell and back. And, you know, at 14, you don't know. I thought I knew everything and I thought that I could understand certain things in my life that had happened or certain moments that had made me act out in different ways. And I was so confused and so angry and I was going through puberty and it's just a toxic mix, you know. I know I couldn't verbalise, I couldn't say what was happening for me, so it came out in really poor behaviours. And, you know, yeah, my parents went through that and they had to watch sort of me self-destruct, you know, when they were willing and able to support me. So we are we are really close now like we speak every day and we're really good friends but I think you know to other parents I'm not a parent myself so I can't I can't sort of speak to that but definitely their unconditional love the door was always open even when they wanted to lock it and change the keys change the change the locks you know they still kept that door open and I think that you know I had to go on my journey of self-discovery and my journey of self-awakening and understanding a lot of things about my past and maybe why I was reacting the way I was and they allowed me to do that in such a maybe it was from afar but a very supportive frustrated kind of moment but they were always there and at the end of the day that's what that's the reason why I'm still alive 
just never give up and they're always your baby at the end of the day that's that that child that little animal that's <laughs> driving you nuts is still your baby and that yeah that love is always felt as a child like I've, I always felt that love so I'm really lucky when you suddenly found yourself in this sort of bohemian lifestyle, living in a house full of artists and musicians, you know, how was this a turning point for you? So I was actually sleeping rough at a train station and um, somebody, I think he knew my sister and he recognised me and he introduced me to this home and it was such an amazing experience. It was the first time, like they didn't know me. I rocked up at their door with like my big bag of stuff. And they were like, yeah, come in, you know, and they taught me music and art and, you know, so many things that really shaped the way that I engaged in the world for the rest of my teenage years. You know, it was it was always going to festivals or parties and, you know, being around really interesting people. Um, so it was a really special time, but I guess with that as well and with any creative culture or subcultures, you know, subcultures of that as well. And I sort of definitely fell into a probably more of a drug-taking side of things like drugs were there but drugs definitely consumed me and why consume them and um yeah that's sort of where I ended up focusing and needing to get out of Melbourne just because my drug use had, had gone through the roof. You're telling me that you moved to northern New South Wales would have been the, like paradise I imagine after Melbourne warm sunshine and you fell in love so where did that take you? Yeah, so it was, it was, like I said, my drug use was out of control and I was, I was about 19 by this stage and yeah, ended up up north living with a really good friend of mine and, you know, she was really supportive and part of my healing and then um, I'd head into town and I met this like super hot guy and yeah, fell in love. But yeah, I guess unfortunately there was a lot that he didn't know about himself. Yeah, I mean, ultimately that, that took me down the road that I'm on now, so when people are infected with HIV, they go through what they call seroconversion. So this is when the the virus is sort of basically like, you know, creating antibodies and attaching itself to cells. You sort of had no idea, but you fell ill and and then you went went to the doctor and, and it was a similar, from what you were telling me, a similar story where first off the doctors really don't suspect HIV. Was that the way it was for you? Mm. Yeah, so I guess, yeah, what I was alluding to is definitely like this guy was unaware of his HIV status. His seroconversion illness was a minimal cold fluish symptom that he could identify after his own diagnosis probably five, six years ago, and he was fine. He was pretty healthy and just showed no signs or symptoms. For me, though, after meeting him, we were having unprotected sex, high-risk sex, that I got sick. I was covered in a rash. I was losing weight. I couldn't eat. I just was very, very ill. And then, yeah, going to the, the you know, the hospital, like I am, um, typical Anglo-Australian, you know, blonde curly hair, blue eyes, and they were testing me for tropical diseases that weren't even in the country because HIV was just not on their radar. And that unconscious bias that women and men and trans people, all people are subjected to by clinicians and doctors that they look at you and they think, well, no, that's not their behavior. They might not be at risk. And it's about, instead of it being about, well, what you perceive as a clinician or doctor, it's about going, well, hang on, these are the symptoms that this person is presenting. Because I mean, HIV, it's not a, it's not a kind of behavior. It's, it's, you can have sex one time. Yeah. You can have experiment with drugs one time, you know, and that's all it takes. And so, yeah, finally, I can't remember because I was so unwell. And when you're that unwell, your brain is just in 
blog and but I'm pretty sure it was a gay nurse that came in and just sort of went she needs a HIV test and sure enough he was right. And this was 2008 so there wasn't really that much talk about HIV so it probably wasn't really on their radar and it's probably very lucky for you that Mm. that gay nurse came in and thought well how about we have a HIV test because you would know of this yourself that there's people who have a late stage diagnosis purely for the fact that they're not tested for HIV until like the last minute. It's that unconscious bias and I think yeah we're not looking for it. I think though like when we're 2008 HIV has been around already for 30 years Um, But this speaks to rural and regional areas where there isn't that education, understanding or even just being exposed to it. But, you know, through my work as well and through my own lived experience, we hear and see about people being misdiagnosed, late diagnosed with really, really detrimental effects on the people. And, you know, it's just it's not good enough that especially even today in 2020, we're still seeing this. So, you know, it's about educating ourselves and being really health literate and health aware about our bodies mm-hmm. and maybe the risks or not risks that we're taking. Um, but just knowing that HIV does exist and it is out there and it doesn't really care what you look like or how often you've had sex or how bad you are in the eyes of society. It's a virus and it will do what it wants to do. (laughs) So when you fell ill, did you even think about HIV at that time? Did it cross your mind? No, not at all. Not at all. And this is a weird, I guess, part of my story is that my mum nursed HIV AIDS patients before they had a name for it in the late 70s, early 80s. And so it was just, it's not that it was ever spoken about, but it was definitely... Like it's, it wasn't on my radar. It wasn't on my radar, even with my own mum's experience. It wasn't there. Yeah. It just, I was young. I didn't care. I'd been having this pretty free and easy lifestyle and I trusted this man. I was in love with him and, you know, that's all it takes. That's all it takes. That relationship, your time, you fell apart at that point and then you moved back to Melbourne to get the support of your family as you would given being given a, a, a diagnosis of HIV and, and not knowing anything about it and, in fact, probably thinking it was a death sentence, not being aware of the treatments that were available. So what happened then when you returned to Melbourne? Yeah, well, it certainly wasn't for family support. I was coming back with my tail between my legs. It, it was, it was, yeah, I need my mum, I need my dad right now, but it was that I've lived this independent life and I thought that I was just kicking goals and then to come back with HIV and go, shit, I've really hit rock bottom. And so it was a tail between the legs. I was depressed, I was fearful, all of these feelings, even though I was told, oh, it's a great year to get HIV, we have so many medications, it's okay, and it's so not okay. You've just been told you've got fucking HIV. I don't care if it's today, 10 years ago, 20, it's still a scary, life-altering moment that you are so alone. And it doesn't matter if you're in a room full of people, you are so alone. And, yeah, the relationship breaking down, I just turned 21, there were so many things happening that I thought I knew where my life was headed and all of that got taken away. And so I got back to Melbourne. I told my sister and then there was a night when my parents were out and I took a drug overdose um, and my sister actually found me in the bathroom um, at our home and rang the hospital and I was taken to the Alfred pretty quickly. don't remember it, of course, because I was not unconscious. Um, and, yeah, I got woken up to this kind of, why didn't you tell us? We, you're my baby. We love you. Because while I was um, in an induced coma or they were doing whatever they were doing, yeah, they said, oh, do you think that this drug overdose was related to a recent HIV diagnosis? And my parents were like, oh, sorry, what? <laughs> yeah. So they knew nothing up in, until that point? 
And so that drug overdose was related to, really, it was related to self-stigma. I was fearful. I was lonely, depression. And it's that moment of 21 and thinking, you know what? I've done pretty good and I'm feeling really good. And I just felt like I'm on this right track. And then it was that fear of, wow, I'm going to be unloved, untouchable, unwanted. This is just going to affect me so much. My life is over. And so I just thought, why why hang around for the pain when I can end it now? Which is a horrible place for anyone to be in. So how did you sort of come out of that? What process of moving forward? So obviously my family support and friends, you know, mum and dad were just amazing. My family, my sister, my brother, um, some friends that were around were really special as well. And I kind of started to get back on my feet and, you know, it'll be okay. I engaged with some community organisations, started meeting other women, especially. It was just the best thing to do. And thought, you know what? I've been through some stuff in my life. I can get over this. I'm, I'm a strong woman. I'm young and person. Got the rest of my life. Family loves me. Got good friends. I can do this. So I kind of re-entered into society. I can't tell you specifically how, when, and where because it is such a fuzzy time. It was then me trying to engage in relationships. And as a bisexual woman or a queer woman, I would date men and women. And you know, I experienced violence. I experienced stigma. Um, I experienced you know, so much rejection and hurt. I had people saying that I was trying to infect the whole of the lesbian community in Melbourne with AIDS, stuff like that. So this all came from really an enormous amount of ignorance from people. So this is this externalised stigma. People put their fears about HIV onto you. By educating them and explaining to them about the treatments and did that change their attitude? I was on intermittent treatment, so back then they would wait for you to start treatment till your CD4 was down to 250. Yeah. Um, I can't remember. I think I'd started and stopped a few times because it was just that process of being a very sexual person and a person that loves to be around people and have fun and all of yeah. that stuff. So those conversations weren't even there about treatment as prevention or undetectable equals untransmittable. So we didn't have those tools. It was basically use a condom and that was it. That was the safety. You know, it was a, it, it was a different dialogue to be had, but also being so newly diagnosed, I wasn't educated myself. I was still dealing with my internalised stigma. And then when somebody would front me and say, you, you're trying to do this to us, you're trying to infect us, you're this bitch, you know, you're this awful person, it gets to a point where you're just like, you know what, fuck it, I'm mm-hmm. over it. So I did, I took the hands off my, you know, I was sort of described as taking your hands off yeah. the steering wheel and just waiting for the car to crash. I took off, I stopped all my HIV medication. I wasn't in a position to be educating people or because I was just petrified mm-hmm. myself and so I just let let HIV do what it did, you know, and just went, started taking lots of drugs again and waited to crash got into a very low point where you were in hospital and about to die. Uh, You had full-blown AIDS, um, you weren't taking treatments. This was sort of the end. But things then turned around for you. Um, I think I was really lucky, you know, being young probably is the one thing that saved me. Um, But, yeah, basically I just stopped my medication. I was taking a lot of drugs and um yeah, my parents, you know, some really important um, community members as well were all kind of going, Sarah, what are you doing? Wake up, wake up. And I actually woke up to my HIV specialist sitting at the end of my bed telling me, if you're going to do this, let's come to hospital and we're going to put you into palliative care. 
Um, I don't remember much else apart from getting a site clearance, my mum collapsing after me saying, yeah, I'm good to die. You know, like a 25, 26-year-old young woman with a completely manageable chronic illness, this just speaks to the volume of what stigma can do and how being so cruel to somebody, you don't even realise the impact that it's having. You know, I was no longer Sarah. I was that girl with HIV and she deserves, you know, it was just no one saw me anymore. I was a virus. You know, I took a, I was given morphine, I was in emergency, was given morphine and I'd watched, you know, some family members go through palliative care and I kind of knew in that moment that was it. And, you know, and I couldn't even speak after the morphine hit me and I don't know what happened in that time, but, you know, I woke up in ICU. Somehow, yeah. <laughs> somehow, alive. Yes, yeah. I'm here. <laughs> so this is sort of around um, 2010 now, but we're eight years away from U equals U, undetectable equals untransmittable, and that has been such a, a game changer um, in in ending stigma because um, you know it's backed by 20 years of scientific evidence. I mean, the treatments that we take today are really, I like to describe them as being as good as a cure um, because you can live long, healthy life. Well, I mean, in New England, we've known, and we've known about it for so long. You think women have been giving birth, positive women, HIV positive women, have been giving birth to children, breastfeeding, um, all of this stuff, taking treatment. So U equals U has been used. I guess it started like, you know, not by accident, but just because, well, women around the world are still going to have children. And um, and that was, I guess, the beginning of U equals U and the understanding. And then, you know, the different studies and the, you know, numerous different sex sexual acts and zero transmissions. It's such a game changer. It's such a liberating moment to think. You know, because I know so many people with HIV and it's one of our greatest fears is to give it to somebody when nobody wants to give this to anybody else. So it really does help reduce that that self-stigma, that internalised stigma. And um, we've talked about internalised stigma, self-stigma and externalised stigma, but there's also stigma by association. So what what has your experience been of stigma by association? Do you mean like um, for people around us, like so for partners? Children? Yes, yeah. So I was married for five, four, five years. But, but, you know, like recently separated, really good mates, loved the guy. But, you know, he came from a multicultural background and, you know, as much as his family loved me, I'm sure if they knew my status, they would not just because they love their little man, their son so much more. And so, you know, I did have to go back and I was quite open about my status for many years. And then all of a sudden being in this like, you know, serious relationship, monogamous, married, it was no longer my virus. It was about going, okay, well, stigma impacts everybody differently. And now he will be impacted directly. So, you know, I would have to adapt and change and kind of go back into the closet a bit. Even same with my family or, you know, some friends, you need to be mindful of disclosing too much information about them in certain forums or be mindful of protecting other people because it does impact, you know, the people around us as well. Yeah, it shows how far we still have to go with ending HIV stigma, doesn't it? It really does. So you're now a HIV peer navigator with Living Positive Victoria and peer navigators are a fairly new role in the HIV sector. Um, so what, what is this role and why is it so important? Peer navigation, I guess, it's it's a, 
you know, a, a jigged or rejigged, very similar to peer support, basically. But it just means that we have a lot more um, clinical relationships. There are, so we work in higher cl clinical caseload clinics, clinical caseload clinics, say that three times fast, in and around Melbourne. And so we have these really great relationships. And I kind of feel like my role as the peer is to be a woman living with HIV. That's cool. My lived experience can also be a way that we connect as peers, but I'm also given a lot of training and support through Living Positive Victoria. Um, and then also have the opportunity for really great partnerships. So you know, like these, these, it's, it's, you know, I have this amazing web that I can navigate people through of different service sport, clinicians, psychologists, everything that somebody might need in their journey. And I, I absolutely love the job. I just get to sit around all day, especially at the moment with stage four lockdowns in Melbourne. I'm on the phone just yarning all day, chatting to beautiful community members that are in different stages of their diagnosis. Some, some people thriving, some people, you know, needing that little bit of extra care at the moment. And it's great that, you know, I'm in a position to offer that. Is that because, Prior to peer navigators, when people are newly diagnosed, they would speak to a you know a HIV nurse, um, you know, be given a few pamphlets and basically just sent on their way and and really left to fend for themselves. So that's now because it's great that there is such a strong understanding of how important that support is, at, particularly for the newly diagnosed. Would, would you agree with that? Well, basically now their peer navigator yeah. is the pamphlet. <laughs> yeah. you know, instead of just that pamphlet, you got a whole person with a whole heap of knowledge. Um, and it is so important. We know, and we know, especially someone like yourself, Heather, that's been around for a long time, we know the power and importance mm. of peer connection because no one else can understand that moment of diagnosis, what it feels like. And even peer support is important or peer navigation, is, as you touched on, about people affected by HIV. So partners, kids friends and family members which you also do support but you know we have people that have been positive for 10 years and then they'll connect into the program and just go why did I wait so long so yeah I love that we're the peer navigation pamphlets I love that <laughs> why have these people waited for so long people who have been diagnosed for 10 years and just haven't reached out for that support so complicated people's lives are complicated and some people don't need it they get diagnosed they take their medication they're okay but I just yeah I mean it's life it's internalized stigma external stigma domestic violence could be culture religion there's so many different factors of why people don't connect within the HIV space but I know once you see people break through that fear or that feeling like they don't belong or that they're not part of a group of gay men or and they see the diversity that we are as a beautiful community within Australia, within our region as well, within the world. Um, mm. It is really great to see people and just the lift. Like it just you feel like, oh, like you're understood, you're part of your community, these are your people. And that's the moment that I wish everybody living with HIV would come and connect into. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're a big community. There's 38 million of us and half, yeah. you know, half are women. So we're a big community. We are. We are a huge community. <laughs> so you're also a, a leader and HIV advocate. You're vice president of uh, the National Association of People Living with HIV and AIDS and also have a role with Femme Fatales, which is the women's advocacy group of of NAPWA and you've become an international HIV advocate what do all these roles mean for you like you you've come from this place where you had given up like you said taken your hands off the steering wheel and and now you are one of the most dynamic 
HIV advocates in Australia, if not the world. Stop, have a note, stop. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, it is, it's exactly that. It's exactly that because I was there. I was at that moment where I wanted to stop. And I had, like, there's been a few really pivotal people that I have met through the HIV community that kind of gave me the kick up the ass I needed. Like, friends and family can do so much, but when there's another person that has gone through exactly what you've gone through, going, oi. You're all right. You know, I live in a lucky country. I have access to medication and I'm sitting here feeling sorry for myself. No, come on, like use this privilege, use this moment to engage and contribute and give back whatever little bit I could do. And, you know, like I'm really lucky that I had been previous chair of Positive Women Victoria and Living Positive Victoria have, you know, taken me on doing health promotion and peer navigation and the board stuff that I do. So that's also with the international community of women living with HIV Asia Pacific and also the national. So it's regional, national and state-based work that I'm doing at the moment. And I love it, you know, half voluntary, half paid. And I'm so lucky that I can have that balance because, you know, as HIV positive peers and advocates, we volunteer our life away. Mm. Um, And so that's important to, you know, make sure that we can support ourselves and thrive. But I think it is, it's just knowing how crap I felt and how low I was. And then I think, you know, meeting other amazing people around the world and people in Australia, everything, it's just the resilience and the strength and the grace that people have in our community, it just inspires me every day to wake up. And I might not be doing the most amazing things in the world, but I'm definitely trying to give back and contribute to this amazing community. Would you say like you saw the need there? Because with 38 million people living with HIV in the world and nearly half of them women, but there's very, very few women openly living with HIV and and not only not are they openly living with HIV but actually being leaders being advocates to to raise awareness of the issues that women face so I imagine you would have seen an, an enormous need there and then you're put into that position positions on the board of Positive Women Victoria the chair of Positive Women Victoria so it's just fantastic that you know you've stepped up and provided your skills and your experience to to do so much good in in this sector oh thank you I think that's very true um to say in Australia like and there was like when I kind of dealt with my stuff and was kind of ready to start engaging I really didn't see many positive women in Australia openly living with HIV globally though I've been so fortunate to meet just dynamite women that are facing you know persecution and and fear and are just living in the most extreme situations, but they're still defiantly standing there and saying, I'm openly a woman with HIV and I ain't going to take this no more. And they're doing amazing work. And I think that inspires me as well that with so little, people around the world can do so much. And I think that we can learn a lot from our brothers and sisters in less fortunate countries in Australia about how to really do some meaningful work. But, you know, it's great to see now since that time when I was engaging, I can name a over two handfuls of women now that are openly living with HIV or that are engaging and that have really stepped up. So it's really nice to see, as I'm sure you would have gone through as well, when you see new faces, you're like, oh, great. Like, let's go, girls. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah, very encouraging, especially the younger women, the younger women stepping up, which is just fantastic. I mean, another thing that people I don't think realise in the general public is there's still around 700,000 people die every year from AIDS. And completely preventable if they could get treatment. 
So in this time of COVID-19, you know, they will eventually find a vaccine and that vaccine will be rolled out to everyone. What can we do to, to, to make sure that more people can get access to those treatments in these developing countries? Good question. It's a big, it is a big question. You're dealing with a lot of corruption, religion, endemic human rights violation, you know, violence against women as well. It is, it is not a one size fits all. Um, some countries are just so corrupt that it doesn't matter how much money medication is thrown at them. It will never get into the hands of the people. You know, the, I think the biggest thing that we can do is just continue to lobby pharma to continue to lobby governments. And also just, you know, we've got to also support the people on the ground, you know, currently in Indonesia, which is a country that is very close to Australia mm. um, and they're having massive medication stock out. Mm. And PNG in Papua New Guinea as well. PNG, they've got, they're having a new system of now the government's just rolling out one line of medication for the whole country. So if it doesn't work for you, too bad. Indonesia and in PNG as well, there are incredible activists, advocates, powerful, powerful people living with HIV on the ground that are fighting. And I guess the best thing to do, you know, especially if this is something that you want to contribute to or be a part of is reach out, Google, you know, HIV organisations, Papua New Guinea and see and contact them and say, hi, look, I'm from Australia. I want to contribute. What can I do? How can I help? Do you need me to write a letter or whatever it is you know like there's ways to connect and it's about you know acknowledging the incredible work that are people doing in their own countries and trying to bolster that as much as we can with the privilege that we have in Australia I mean we have internet and electricity and little things like that that really help advocacy so yeah well that's right just don't take our foot off the accelerator just keep the pressure on I mean the advocates that have come before you in the 80s it's just continuing it hasn't it hasn't stopped has it no that 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 fight hasn't stopped and it's not just about ending stigma it's about getting access to those treatments to those 700,000 people who die every year exactly it's just you think 40 years on now from the beginning really of the pandemic the epidemic as we know it yeah it is a shame that it's still used as a bargaining tool that medications that are life-saving are still used like this on different communities I just wanted to say as well I've heard you speak a number of times and there's a some words that you use and every time I hear you say them I I just feel this shiver run through me and it's, it's no longer about living and surviving with HIV, it's about thriving. Can you tell me more about what that means for you in a day-to-day life? I think, you know, just um, talking about, well, I'm glad I give you shivers back at you. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. It is. I think, you know, I, I have lived with HIV. I functionally lived with it because my I felt like I needed to because I had love and support around me. I'm thriving with HIV now. I'm as happy and as unhappy as any other person in the world. I, you know, live my life, highs and lows, and HIV doesn't impact at all what I do. HIV stigma does exist. I can deal with that a lot better now. I'm stronger. I'm confident. I will sit you down and educate you until you get it. You know, like I just live a normal life. I'm thriving with HIV. My medications work for me. I have a great doctor. There is no physical reason why I can't live and thrive with a normal life and that's because of you know great treatments great support great community great opportunities and you know when you're living day by day you don't know when you can get your next dose of medication if it even really works for you or HIV is constantly being used against you 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 just live with it you have to just live with it but 
kind of just goes to the back, you know, it just sits in your back pocket there, it reminds you to take your medication and you just live. Really not a barrier to my existence. And in some days it makes me work harder and want to do more and live better. Well, thank you, Sarah, so much for sharing your story today on our stories ending HIV stigma. Uh, is there anything else you'd, you'd like to to leave us with? Um, well, look, if you can, just a, just a thank you so much for having me on. And if anybody wants more information about the peer navigation program or any um, stuff that, you know, we were just talking about, happy for you to um, share my, my email, which is svegan at livingpositivevictoria.org.au and Heather will write that out for you. There'll be links at the end. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. So, yeah, look, you know, just reach out, stay connected, stay well. And, um, yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity, Heather. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you can listen when future episodes are posted. Please rate and review this podcast and share it. Our Stories is part of the Women and HIV Tell the Story project made possible by Gilead Sciences through the Gilead Together Grant Program and produced by Positive Women Victoria, a community-based support and advocacy organisation for women living with HIV in Australia. I'm Heather Ellis. Thanks so much for listening. Isn't it time we ended HIV stigma once and for all? For more information about this episode, visit positivewomen.org.au.